Welcome to the Clemson Dubcast, a rainy Saturday here in upstate South CAC. Perfect day to publish a podcast. The lengthy Danny Ford series is complete, and we're going to talk a lot about that with Pete Yanity in our second interview. Uh, but right now, this weekend, Paul Strilo and I doing some deep dives on the current state of affairs with Clemson football, quarterback situation, wide receiver situation, defensive ends, Xavier Thomas. Check it all out at TigerIllustrated.com. Title sponsor of the Dubcast since the very beginning, back in August of 2018, Parm Smith and Archenhold Law Firm in downtown Greenville. They want you to know that their office remains open and available to serve you during the COVID-19 crisis. They are also offering their clients the ability to meet via telephone or through video conferencing. Whether you have a loved one who has suffered from a car accident, defective product, a neglectful nursing home facility, or medical malpractice issue, Parm Smith and Archenhold's Greenville lawyers can provide the protection and guidance you need. Free consultations, 864-990-4581, or on the web at parhamlaw.com. That's P-A-R-H-A-M law.com. Want to share a quick word about Founders Federal Credit Union? If you've been to a sporting event in Clemson, you've probably heard about Founders already. They are the official credit union partner of the Clemson Tigers. In addition to that, all Clemson faculty, staff, and students are eligible for membership as well as IPTA members. Matt Gross is a proud Clemson alum and the vice president for the Clemson market for Founders Federal Credit Union. Matt's office is located beside the Walmart neighborhood market on Old Greenville Highway in Clemson. For more information, go to foundersfcu.com. Another loyal supporter of the Dubcast is Blackacre Law Firm in Greenville, a subsidiary of Parm Smith and Archenthold. Blackacre helps South Carolina residents achieve their dreams of home ownership by providing experienced professional representation for real estate closings. Attention to detail is crucial in real estate law. Blackacre is committed to making sure nothing gets by them preparing residential or commercial closings. Blackacre also offers estate planning services for their clients in the Greenville area. Find out more about Blackacre at 864-326-3507. Okay, to our first interview with Cole Kubelik of ESPN, a frequent guest of the Dubcast. He was in Athens, Georgia last weekend for Georgia's spring game. I'm guessing that a lot of y'all might be interested in some of his observations given the fairly uh, large exhibition coming up in the opener in Charlotte. So we'll start with Cole and then to Pete Yannity. Here we go. All right, joined by Cole Kubelik, who was in Athens, lovely Athens, Georgia, last weekend. How you doing, man? Hey, doing great, Larry. How are you? I'm doing well. Really interested to get some of your insights, not just on what you saw during the G-Day game, but, man, UTV guys have an enviable sort of position in the age of reduced access you know, for the beat reporters who do it every day, you got you guys get to visit with the coaches beforehand, and in watching the the broadcast of the game and reading some of your social media correspondence, it seems like you got some really good insight uh, in in a lot of your conversations with not just the coaches but also JT Daniels. What was your sort of overriding takeaway from your from your uh, weekend in Athens? Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of the stuff we got is I don't want to say there are any real secrets or anything, but it's just maybe confirmation on some questions that people have had. Um, you know, the, the JT stuff, I just don't think anybody really knows him. I don't think we, he hadn't come through media days. He hadn't, he hadn't sat down for a bunch of interviews. He hasn't, he hasn't really been introduced to STC fans or college football fans. So, 
I don't know if there's a misperception. I don't know if there was a perception. I think people see, oh, California kid, oh, Keaton Slovis gets the job and you leave and come across the country to Georgia. Like what, you know, the way the beginning of last year went, some people had questions. But when you sit down and talk to him and you hear his process, you hear his organization, you know, you hear how much football means to him and kind of the way that he studies it. But it's just impressive. It's, it's really impressive to hear how much of a football nerd he is, so to speak. And I mean that in a positive way as possible. So I, I, I didn't really know what to think of him, what to make of him, because I hadn't I haven't really heard him talk. So uh, I was impressed with, with, with the young man and just kind of how he handles himself, how composed he was, and then just how detailed his football preparation is. And I think my overriding takeaway from the weekend was just the physicality. I don't even want to say physicality, but just the the size that Georgia brings in certain spots. And I mean, I just, I don't know. This doesn't mean, you know, there's going to be people that listen to this and think that I, it means that they can't lose or, you know, that I think that they're just going to, you know, Godzilla the city on the 2021 season. And it's not what I mean, but it's just, you asked me what my biggest takeaway was, and it was, you know, they're they're physically different than I think anybody they're going to play, and, and I would include teams that they might see in the playoffs. Um, I mean, they got they got a six seven, two hundred eighty five pound tight end who's got about a thirty two inch waist. So people <laughs> see two eighty five and they're like, oh, well, he'll move to tackle, or oh, he can't run, or he can't move. Well, no, he actually can, and. Yeah, you know, the responses I get on Twitter, he can't catch. Well, I saw him catch four balls in the spring game. You know, he's flexible. He's a willing blocker. You know, Darnell Washington is a guy that you don't see a lot of. And, and uh, you know, Clemson fans are used to seeing some some pretty freakish tight ends. You know, I think, I think Braden Galloway's got a chance to be great. But, I mean, this guy's just physically different. I mean, he looks like a basketball center. And then... <laughs> You know, I see Amarius Mims, freshman tackle prospect. That's just, I mean, as good looking a tackle prospect as a freshman that I've seen in a long time. I mean, six seven, three twenty five, small waist, big butt, big quads, arms going past his kneecaps. I mean, it just you don't see a lot of guys like that. Um, they got a kid named Adam Anderson that's going to play star, which is you know a hybrid safety position which means he'll be in the alley a lot is six, five, two thirty. Mm. You know, Amir speed at corner six, three, two eleven. Uh, Jordan Davis, defensive tackle six, six, three fifty. And he's next to Devonta Wyatt. Who's six, three, three twenty five. I just, they have four offensive linemen that have a chance to play that are all at least six, six, three, 10. And again, I, I'm not saying it means they're going to win every game, but I just I just know they have characters on that team that are physically different than anybody they're going to play. Now, can they utilize that to their advantage every week? Is that going to give them certain advantages against certain teams that allow them to win? Yeah, maybe sometimes. But, I mean, that was really the biggest takeaway. I think, I think corner and offensive line – are two positions that need more development before they're going to be even good, much less great. But it's pretty apparent the talent is there. They're just inexperienced and young and hadn't played a lot of football together. So 
those are kind of the things that I think were glaring from what I saw and maybe where my opinion has changed a little bit as opposed to what I thought about them going in. So walking off the bus, it sounds like your classic Alabama team. Yeah, a lot of it. But, I, I mean, I look at that Alabama team and I still think, I mean, Evan Neal's a monster tackle. Um, but I don't know about the rest of those spots. Like they got some big D linemen, but they don't have a lot of that other stuff that Georgia has. Yeah. So to you, is it just sort of the culmination of all those highly regarded recruiting classes finally sort yeah, of buried I, I, just, I think I think that's that's part of a Kirby's emphasis. I mean, I think he believes that you know physicality can still help you win games, can still go a long way in winning games. You gotta have a quarterback, you gotta be balanced, you know, schematically you gotta be solid, assignment, fundamentals, gotta be good. Um, but I just think he I think he believes and, and I do too that there are going to be points in time when if you can physically impose your will, even with just certain individuals in a game, it's going to give you massive advantages. And they've got a lot of guys across the board that should be able to do that. With uh, Monken and Daniels, they they were not able to go through a, a, a spring last year. Of course, didn't have the normal offseason. Of course, they're going to be a lot better a year later being able to go through the typical off-season routine. Is it to, to my through my eyes Georgia's offense was under the radar improved last year just the way they were the way Munkin was moving around the pieces even though it's not like they were just you know knocking everybody's socks off it's from a general perspective. I kind of like the direction there. Uh, from what I saw, utilizing the running backs a lot in the passing game, and uh, I mean they have Alabama on the ropes and Tuscaloosa. What do you see it that way as well? That that Monken might be the well, I guess Monken plus Daniels is is maybe the the game changer for them. Yeah, it's interesting when you say they didn't have a spring last year, but it, I mean in reality that part didn't even really matter. I mean they didn't go into the fall knowing who their quarterback was going to be. Yeah. And I I actually, I talked to coach Munkin on this, on the field before the game. I said, just ask him how much different it was now than then. And he just went on night and day. He said, so it's gotta be nice just knowing who you are, what you can try to attach, what you can try to build on the things that you know, you need to take away. Don't even waste your time with. I mean, last year it's, I mean, he's been, and this is the thing that I said about Georgia going into last year that not a lot of people paid attention to, or maybe they just didn't believe it. But, you know, I, when, when Newman decided not to, not to play or when he quit or whatever, it wasn't just the fact that you lost a guy that was pretty talented. Where that hurt the most, in my opinion, was you just had a guy steal two or three months of first-team reps. Mm-hmm. They were stolen from that team. And now you had to sort of hit the reset button. And that, I mean, that could literally be your seven-on-seven seven stuff that the guys are doing on their own during the summer. But still, that's where leaders are born. That's where, I mean, Trevor Lawrence was taking guys out on the field 
the last two or three years during the summer, telling them where to line up, telling them when to break a route off early, telling them how to get out of a route, telling them what to do against certain coverage. That's where you develop some of that unspoken language, the chemistry of being able to look at a guy and you know, all right, I'm going to break this route off a little bit quick, or okay, I can get him to the outside here. All that was gone because he was the one that was supposed to come in and do it. And then you had the Juwan Mathis, Stetson Bennett, and I think there was a little bit of the ghost of Justin Fields hanging around there where they probably wanted to make sure that Juwan Mathis wasn't going to go do what Justin did and have that happen two times in a row. Then Stetson ended up being their, their best opportunity to win games with. So just that juggling act alone early in the season, that's like you can't build an offense like that. I mean, you're essentially just treading water at that point. Like, what what can we even just feasibly get away with? So I think now you know exactly who you are. You know exactly what you're capable of, what your quarterback can handle, what everybody else around him can handle, how much responsibility you're able to give him. You're not going to give and take the amount of responsibility that a quarterback has. You know, if there's a, if there's a different guy that you need to put in for – short yardage quarterback runs if that's something that you wanted to do you can do that there's a if there's a guy that you know can come in and help you do things from a route perspective you know what that's going to look like so I, I just think it's totally different i really do and and now they're going to have an identity going into they're not just having an identity going into the season they have an identity going into the summer when where they start preparing for the season so i think that that becomes a massive advantage for coach Munkin for JT Daniels and the rest of that offense. And they, they seem to think that George Pickens, who tore his ACL recently, could be back late in the year? Well, I think that's the desired outcome. I mean, I don't think anybody's predicting that. Yeah. But, I mean, I just, I mean, I've had two, I've had two ACL surgeries. I'm, I know I've, I've talked to other guys. I've seen it. I've watched it. I know, I mean, I've been in those cases. I, I know what the timeline is. And when you, when you look at the timeline and you see, you, you hear the fact that there was no other damage and you see the fact that, okay, this lines up to where if everything goes according to plan, you could potentially get him back for the home stretch, you know, whether it's the last two games, last three games of the regular season, you go 10, 15 snaps, you go, you know, 18, 25 snaps, you go 30 snaps. And then, SEC championship game, all of a sudden you've, you've almost got him as a, a full-speed player. Uh, and the thing about an ACL is through a lot of your rehabilitation, you can actually do things that are going to get you ready to play football. Going full speed is always going to be different, but you know it's not like when, when I broke my fifth metatarsal and I had a screw put in and I'm in that boot, I mean, I can go train in the pool. You know, I can go... I can go something on a zero gravity treadmill, but I mean, you, I'm not really out there on the field doing drills that translate to football with an ACL. You can sort of do that. So I know that's his desired outcome. I know that's the team's desired outcome. A lot of things have to happen for that to take place. But I mean, the reason that I would say that I think it's more probable than doubtful is just the fact that they both want it to happen and they're going to do everything they can and that's already been stated instead of where somebody's like, well, I don't even know if I was healthy. I'm going to come back or we'll see where the team is. It's that's not the kind of chatter that you're getting around that deal. And you think they'll be fine at receiver without him, that they're plenty. I do. Plenty yeah, I, I think, you know, I, I think with Burton and Robertson and 
uh, you know, this A.D. Mitchell that's coming in that they really like. I, I think they have enough numbers along with a really good tight end room. I mean, you still got Burton and Fitzpatrick to go along with Washington, which are different. I mean, Fitzpatrick, I mean, talking about big dudes, I mean, he's another 6'7", 250. Uh, Burton will be more of a move tight end that I think they can utilize a little bit. You know, then you have some backs that can do some different things. Like I think Cook is sort of your motion back. You line him up out wide. You give him some jets. You throw him the ball a little bit. And then you have a couple downhill backs like Zamir White that can be your in-between-the-tackles guys a little bit more often. There's enough around JT Daniels to offset losing one guy. And, and I think also in, in today's college football, if you're building an offense for one guy, I know what Devonta Smith just did, but I think we also know what else they had when – you have the ability to hand it to Najee behind a great offensive line or use Billingsley at tight end or Waddle at other times or Mechie at other times. I mean, Mechie almost had a 1,000 yards receiving last year, and, and people don't even talk about it. They don't even mention his name. So if you're building an offense for one guy, especially through the air, there's going to come a time where it's pretty tough to get that guy the ball. So I almost think it actually helps the development of JT Daniels a little bit more to not have that eraser, to not have that safety valve, to not have that get-out-of-jail-free card guy where, okay, well, I'm just going to give it to him. Or even have that mentality of, i got to keep this guy happy. i got to make sure he's, he's feeling it. i got to make sure he's, you know, he's, he's thinking positive things because we want him to stay tuned in. Now it's just, where's my best matchup? Where, where, where can I most easily win and help create an explosive play? And we I mean, know what I don't I don't know that that's just my opinion, but I actually think that that could help his development as far as far as how he manages the entire offense a little bit. Georgia has uh, Alabama on the ropes in Tuscaloosa with Stetson Bennett at quarterback uh, and their other loss of the year against Florida. Bennett's banged up. And if if they have a quarterback who can hit an open receiver, Downfield, they they maybe beat Florida. I get. I guess the point is, Monken is putting those guys in the right positions. It seems like what impresses you the most about his system, and how do you see uh, him building upon that now with more resources and more sort of uh, uh, continuity going into this season. Yeah, I think the, a couple of things that stick out when I watch his offenses, one is balance, two is, is, you know, how it varies, the different variables that he'll give you. Um, you know, three, I don't, I, kind of like what we talked about before, I don't think he locks on to just one or two guys. I think he game plans around a defense instead of going in saying, okay, we got to force this guy to ball, make sure this guy touches the ball X amount of times. Um, and then I think now going in, he'll just be able to add a lot more to what can change before the snap and what can change after the snap because he's got a guy that he knows can handle it. And, I mean, that's what playing quarterback's all about is decision-making. You coach him what decisions to make, and then he's got to get out there and be able to do it. Um, Now, that can go to timing. That can go to reads. That can go to anticipation. That can be knowing the defense. That can be knowing how the defense changes. That can be your protections, what protections will work, what won't work, what protections you need to get to, where pressure may be coming from. A lot of things can can play into that and how that happens. But now he knows he's got it, so he'll be a little bit more advanced, I think, in just how he's able to attack people. And I think – they, I think they want to become more explosive. I think part of what you saw the last four games, JT Daniels wanted to prove that they, he could get the ball down the field. I mean, there were a couple times when – I think there's even one I was watching the film and Kirby kind of looks frustrated when he sees the ball go downfield. It ends up being a long touchdown. 
So, I mean, I think he wanted to prove he could do it. Now they know he can do it. Now Munkin can give him more of that. And, you know, I, I expect it to be more consistent more than anything else. It's not going to have to change as much one week to the next. The identity won't have to alter itself, you know, based on who's a quarterback, who you're playing, who you have, who you don't have. You know, and the other part of what you mentioned, too, about those games is those defenses were pretty beat up. Um, I mean, hell, I was on the sideline for the for the Kentucky game when – it's like Jordan Davis goes out, and then you're already playing with a beat-up inside linebacker, Monty Rice, who's like barely moving around. One safety goes out, next safety goes out, and you're—I mean—you're sitting there thinking, okay, all of a sudden this defense is a mashed unit. It's supposed to be one of the best in the country, and you know they're just trying to find guys who can go fill voids. So I think that's another part of kind of taking your approach and looking at the positives of what they were able to do last year as opposed to just saying, oh, it was this massive letdown. What do you make of Clemson, uh, sort of the state of Clemson right now from the outside looking in? I mean, two years ago, you and I are talking about, hey, are they running away from everybody after they after they beat Alabama 44-16 to and Nick Saban is hem- hemorrhaging assistant coaches? Um and then a year later, uh, LSU, the stars align, and, and, and they can't hang with them. And then a few months ago, they are just physically overwhelmed on both sides of the ball by Ohio State. What, what do you make of Clemson right now from what you've seen of them, just sort of big picture? Well, first off, everybody gets got. And yeah. I will never judge a program on one game. So – you know, whether it's LSU a couple of years ago, which, I mean, I spent almost all of quarantine debating if that was the greatest offense that we had seen at the college level ever. Yeah. And when you look at the numbers and you look at who they did it against and where they did it, it's kind of hard to deny it. Um, so, you know, and that I think that Ohio State team was just, was just something that just sort of happened that was a little bit different. They just... They had some matchups that worked, and they had some things that that went their way early, and it was just kind of a little bit too much to overcome. Um, My opinion of the program hasn't really changed much, and and that's because they continue to reload with elite recruiting classes. And a little bit different than Nick Saban is he Dabo's been able to hold on to a lot of his his big name assistant coaches. Um, you know, you had an offensive coordinator that was up for a lot of jobs. A lot of people thought was leaving. You have one of the best defensive coordinators in college football, uh, that's still going to be there and, and, and continue to be problematic. And I think we all know what's coming up next at quarterback. Cause we've had a chance to see him and we know good and well what he's capable of. And if you have a guy that can do some of those things, you're probably going to win a lot of games. So yeah, I, I think. I think Clemson is, I mean, we, we've sort of turned this thing into a three-team conversation at this point on the calendar for the last few years, be it Alabama, Ohio State, Clemson, in whatever order you want to discuss them. And then it's, okay, who's the other team that's going to show up to the table? Is it LSU? Is it Notre Dame? Is it Georgia? Is it Oregon? You know, who's going to be the team that decides this year, you know, they either have what it takes or want to be what it takes. And they're going to get on that stage and be able to compete. So, you know, I I look at this year as there, there are definitely more maybes and what ifs. Um, You look at a Justin Ross. What if he's able to come back and be what we've already seen him be? I mean, that's a, that's a big difference maker. Um, I think we all believe that DJ can be 
as big time of a college quarterback as there's going to be next year, which it doesn't even look like there's a clear number one. Like, who's QB1 going into next year? Is it Slovis, JT Daniels? Um, you know, I mean, some people might try to throw in uh, Derek King. Is it Matt Corral? I mean, I don't think that there's just that guy like there has been the last three years. It's been Trevor Lawrence. We've known that. And now we don't really know who QB1 is going into this year. But we know what DJ is capable of because we've seen it. I think you're going to have one of the better defensive lines in all college football. And they'll have extra advantages because they're going to be given the, the capabilities to attack on a regular basis because that's what Venables does. And he's brilliant with how he mixes things up and changes things around. Um, and and I think that too, if you want to go to the other side of that, they're like I said, they're legitimate concerns. I'm I have no idea what you know. I I talk about college football fans a lot, Larry. In that one thing that's disappointing about college football fans is how quickly we forget greatness, and how quickly we just move on from greatness and anticipate the next thing is going to be as good or better. The lack of appreciation for how good Travis Etienne has been the last few years to me is a little bit staggering. And when I point that finger, it's not at Clemson fans. It's at college football fans because I mean, that, that guy had to sort of change who he was last year, and he was still as impactful. And he goes down as the ACC's all-time pretty much everything at tailback statistically. And I just think people are like, oh, yeah, well, you know, it's running back. They'll, they'll find another guy. And he was pretty special. Yeah. And I don't, I don't know if you just replace special with even more special or as special. So I think that's a big loss. And I think the offensive line still has some growing up to do. You know, that's been an area that I've pointed to the last few years that I don't think is, is one that Clemson really wins games with. I think they get by more so. And a lot of that is because of guys like Travis Etienne, Trevor Lawrence and Justin Ross and Amari Rogers and, you know, different players on the perimeter or skill guys that can turn high percentage plays into explosive plays. But at some point in time, I mean, you're going to come down to a situation where that group needs to go win you a game or win you a possession. I mean, I remember the Boston College game a couple of years ago when Trevor went out and it was like the last three, four series of that game, all of a sudden this light switch came on. And that group just started kicking everybody's ass for two or three series. And you're like, well, where's that been? And that's the reason they all thought they won the game. So I, you're going to need that group, whether it's short yardage, red zone, certain matchups, particular team, uh, another team physically, what they bring to the table, that they're going to have to go win games for you. I still believe that physicality wins games. I still believe games ultimately are won or lost in the trenches. Just look at the Super Bowl. Um, you know, look what Alabama did to Ohio State. I, I mean, I, I still think that I mean, we, we keep talking about defense and how defense doesn't win championships, but Tampa's defense is pretty good. You know, Bama held Notre Dame and Ohio State to under 400 total yards in both those playoff games. Uh, so I still think defense can win championships, and I still think you need to win in the trenches. And I actually look at that Georgia-Clemson game, and I see two groups on the offensive line that are talented, one with Georgia that probably just doesn't have the experience together. They're going to need a lot of continuity and they're going to need to grow with chemistry and understanding and wherewithal. And then one with Clemson that just physically needs to grow up. I think the group that plays the best there probably wins that game. Cause you have, well, first off you have two great defensive lines, maybe the two best defensive lines in the nation. So if you can't neutralize your 
that opponent right there, that's going to go a long way in you finding any success offensively. And then, you know, you got two quarterbacks that are extremely valuable that are going to need to be protected at the same time. So, and two defenses that are very aggressive. So you're going to have to have not only the physical prowess, but the brain power to be able to understand what's coming, recognizing the fronts, seeing the pressures, picking up the stunts and handling all that. So, I mean, I kind of look at those two teams talent-wise very close across the board, some better than the other in certain places. Some have matchup advantages in some places, but I'm kind of leaning towards the offensive line that plays the best in that game, probably going to take home the W. Almost makes you wonder if it's going to be like a 16-13 to 13 game <laughs> based on how, how good those defensive lines are against some questionable offensive lines. Yeah, and I think, Georgia, you do have questions in the secondary, so could – could you see Uyungo Lale going for 400? Maybe if they find the matchups they like and they get that protection. Um, you know, I think same thing with JT. If if they get a little pressure happy and all of a sudden Georgia's able to get a couple big tight ends in, they pick it up. There could be explosive plays that they could generate. So I just think whoever handles their business up front on offense in that game the best, most likely that team's probably going to win. Have you had a chance to watch uh, Bryce Young's showing in the in the Bama Spring game? Yeah, I've watched it a few times. Um, I think Twitch is the first thing that comes to mind. He just he really can change what he's doing very quickly. He can change direction. He can change where the ball is going. He can get the ball out. He can turn from a runner to a passer very quickly. You know, he can go from surveying the left side of the field all the way to the right side of the field and get it out in a hurry. He can get from start to stop in a hurry. Um, he's just, he's very twitchy and I'm not making, I'm not going to dare make the player comp of who comes to mind, but you know, there's, there's not a lot of guys that have that kind of bounce in the pocket and that kind of ability that quickly to be able to move and be different basically turn into a different player that quickly with the ball in their hands behind the line of scrimmage. He has the ability to do that. Some of the accuracy did, didn't look great at times. Um, I think understanding of, you know, ball velocity, ball tempo, um, elevation on the ball, how to level it at certain points. Those things will probably come with more experience, but I mean, talent, no question about that. And I mean, it's just, Feels like they're just reloading. I mean, Roydell Williams looks great at tailback. This is Jai Hall kid just looks like the next, you know, number one Alabama receiver, maybe with a bigger catch radius than the last few guys we've seen. So Billingsley's going to be solid at tight end. Evan Neal's going to left tackle. That looks like it's going to be fine. So he'll have um, plenty of weapons around him to help any of the deficiencies that he might have early in his career. All right, Cole. Should be fun. Uh, always enjoy talking big time football with you, and appreciate all your all your really good insight. And uh, uh, it comes from a lot of homework, you can tell. So, uh, thanks for your time, man, and uh, safe travels this weekend. Absolutely, Larry. I appreciate you having me on. If you're in the Eastern Midlands and PD area, and you're in any way interested in buying and selling a home commercial property, land, need to consider reaching out to Uptown Realty. They're based out of Sumter and run by a friend of mine, Patrick Enzer, big Clemson guy, used to cover the Tigers in a newspaper capacity, longtime supporter of Tiger Illustrated, longtime listener to the Dubcast. The home buying process should be an enjoyable experience, so let Patrick and his staff do all the heavy lifting. All you got to do is pick up the phone and call 803-774-0435 or go to uptownrealtysc.com. 
Solero Communications, formerly known as Tandem Payment, is a full-service integrated electronic payments provider powered by leading-edge technology. Solero provides a wide array of merchant solutions, simplified payments. They make onboarding, taking payments, maintaining risk management and compliance, and getting support quick and easy. At Solero, they're all about helping you achieve sustainable growth as a business. Taking payments isn't the only thing your business needs. With Solero's solutions, you can manage inventory, sell products and services via social media, Media, schedule staff, track sales, get reports, and much, much more. Find out more about Solero at solerocommerce.com. That's C-E-L-E-R-O commerce.com. At Harris Home and Harris Commercial, they want you to get every detail right. Harris means beautiful design that delivers taste, style, and comfort. It's a legacy of integrity built by generations of outstanding reliability and service. It's all about creating just the right look, the perfect feel, and dependable function for every room in your home or any business setting. Folks at Harris are Clemson people based in Anderson. A lot of Clemson University's recent facilities improvements have Harris's fingerprints all over them. For endless flooring possibilities and breathtaking renovation, the only name you need to know is Harris. Website is discoverharris.com. Okay, joined by Pete Yannity, WSPA Sports Director. How you doing, man? I am doing just great. It is an honor. I'm making my second appearance on what has become a world famous. In (laughs) fact, I'd say a planetary famous podcast. Um, what, uh, so you texted me yesterday, uh, about the, you'd read some of the Danny Ford, uh, reminiscences, I guess. Um, and it's, it's really interesting how I'm getting various, uh, correspondence from folks who were around back then. Uh, I, I was around back then, but not in a professional capacity. So it's really, it's, and I don't want to start this with a monologue, but the coolest, the most interesting thing to me is that this series actually ran before back in 2012, yep. um, summer of 12. And the way it is received now in the midst of unfathomable uh, brilliance by Dabo Sweeney and, and Clemson's football program is much different from the way it was received six months after 70, 70 to 33, you know, like back then it's like, yeah, I could see that. Yeah. I mean, back then it's yeah. like, okay, there was still a great attachment to the glory days. There was still this notion. Hey, I don't know about this Dabo guy. And yep. yeah, he's a good coach. He won the ACC, but he's no Danny. Whereas yep. now when you read it, it's like, it's the exact opposite. Is Danny's Danny was no Dabo. Um, it's it's That's kind a of a really interesting way to put it. Yeah, and just you know your excellent book that came out about the the rivalry. That is that what you're referring to? The rivalry book that featured a lot of the Danny Ford. Well, no, items? no. Th- this this series uh, that ran the last two and a half weeks uh, at TigerIllustrated.com. It actually ran in 2012 for the first time and we decided to rerun it um gotcha recently gotcha. so interesting yeah and so the, the everything that has has been published in recent weeks was published in the summer of 2012 on our website we just figured now would be a good time to 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 publish it again you know i mean you know nine years wow. and, uh, and and i i did not exp- i just was sort of like okay yeah we're we, that's fine sure. we're doing the series um, it actually, <laughs> I actually, it benefits me cause 
I, I actually was able to take some time off. I didn't have to really write, do sure. a whole lot of, of work. And so, but I, I, it didn't really hit me until I started reading, uh, reading it again and then hearing mm-hmm. and seeing what people were saying on our message board. Like, wow, man, those were some really tumultuous times. You know, it just seemed like every other week yeah. there was something happening, like a total roller coaster, <clears> even despite <throat> the national championship, despite the. 10 win seasons and, and, and prominence and all that, it was a tough time um, just because of all the controversies that seemed like they were happening on a regular basis. Well, your head's spinning back really from, you could argue from late in that 1980 season when it looked like Danny, you know, might get run out because folks were saying then, and I wasn't in the state at the time, but I've read enough, learned enough, talked enough to people about it. You know, it's so funny, the parallels of Dabo and Danny, and that's another one, because folks were saying, gosh, is this the right guy? He's no Charlie Pell. And obviously, you just said, as folks were saying early on in Dabo's run, yeah, but he's no Danny. But just by the way, to backstep on the rivalry book, a quaint story you'll appreciate, uh, 11, December of 11, I'm, we're flying out. I had a Clemson at Arizona basketball game for the radio network. And I picked up your book and started reading it at the start of that trip. We actually had a stop. This is never, it's the only time it's ever happened on a chartered flight, I guess, since we were flying from Greenville to, uh, uh, Tucson, Arizona, we actually stopped in Oklahoma city to refuel. And it wasn't until we were on the ground for a few minutes that I suddenly realized we're not flying. What's going on? And someone said, we've stopped in Oklahoma City Real Fuel. That's how into that book I was. I believe <laughs> I ran the entire, I read the entire book on the flight out to, uh, to Tucson because, A, some of those moments, like the, the prank that USC pulled uh, with the players going out in the Clemson uniforms before a game in the 60s, that's the first time for as much as I was into the rivalry and it, it called games in it or whatever, I'd never heard that story from folklore or whatever until I read it in your book. But then obviously anything from mid eighties on, I pretty much lived and it was just fascinating going back through a lot of that, but that was a nod to your book. So anyone listening who's never bought Larry's book <laughs> about the rivalry, I'm sure it's, it's found on Amazon and in better bookstores near you. So you need to read that. Yeah. It's funny. Uh, um, I have a friend, Brian Strickland, high school football coach, um, I know him well. Yeah, he he's you know he coached it at JL Man uh, and Rodney Williams helped out. Yep. I think I think they remain close. And I was uh, chit chatting with Brian I think just a few days ago, and um, he said that that somehow the I guess it, I guess it might have been the reason this came up was because he was Brian was reading the the Danny Ford series on the website, but he said. Man, that '87 game in Columbia, where Rodney threw the the pick six to Brad Edwards, you know, his hometown. He's getting serenaded with chants of his name, and it's like just a total nightmare evening for him. One of the worst nights of his life, you would think. And Brian was Brian asked Rodney, "Hey, man, you must have you probably couldn't get out of Columbia quick enough that night." And Rodney said, "Huh." He said, I went down to five points and hung out with Todd Ellis and Brad Edwards. And that's part of the, that's my favorite (laughs) sort of, uh, I think that's my favorite part of the rivalry book, sort of the revelation, because we we explored that, like how, you know, in the middle of this cutthroat rivalry that's so monumental to everyone, uh, these college kids are still being college kids, you know, yep. once the, once the playing is over. So it really, it's really a great cool point. Stuff. Yeah. It's such a great point. And it'd be interesting to do a study on how many, uh, 
former Clemson and Carolina football players went into business with each other at some point in their lives. Not, I mean, obviously there are a lot of alums and or fans of the programs that have done business relationships. And of course, then we hear the famous stories of, yeah, I got to hear it. It works 364 days until the next game. But how many business relationships were developed among former Clemson and Carolina football players? And, you know, it's really interesting, Larry. I was in the state for the 85 game, which was about an eight-point Clemson win in a battle of, of teams that were going to finish around 500 to see who would get a bowl bid. And so Clemson won that. I physically didn't cover that game. And then I was working in West Virginia in 86 for the, I think you'd say more infamous than anything, uh, tie ball game that also featured some Brad Edwards, uh, stellar plays, but I, I, I either covered or called every Clemson Carolina game from 87 to 2013. And there were, really good games in that stretch and the 1987 game maybe it's because the first one i attended in person which was a 27 to 6 carolina win but i remember that game the specifics of that game probably more than even the the dozen or so nearly dozen clemson carolina games that i later actually called on the radio because i I vividly remember terry allen being carted off uh, with his leg up because Wait, he got that hurt was, in that game. Was it that? I thought that was, uh, that might've been, that, 80, was, that, that, was, that was 89. That was yeah. 89. Okay. That was 89, but 87, I vividly remember the Rodney chant. I vividly remember Ed McDaniel after the fact saying, I think he might've been a true freshman on the bench that he was actually scared. You know what I mean? Standing on the sidelines that night, the Clemson linebacker. And, um, and he, uh, Ed McDaniel saying that. And I'm, and I'm remembering that atmosphere. Cause I was in the open, they had an open air kind of a photo deck yeah. where I was, position during that game. And I can understand that, but the Rodney chant, the Brad Edwards play, um, you know, Alan, yeah, Alan was 89. And I always remember because they were both night games, but I remember him being carted off 89, which was probably the only bad thing that happened that night for Clemson. But uh, that 87 game, so much of it stands out. And maybe it's because it was the first one I attended in person. Mm -hmm. Um, Yes. Back to the Danny, Danny sort of Dabo uh, theme. You know, I had to sort of th- remind myself and think back to, to to the beginning of Dabo's tenure as head coach, just trying to, you know, get a grasp of how big Danny still was back then. I, I distinctly remember it was a common question to Dabo from media members and from fans to like, hey, when is he going to go uh, establish a relationship with Danny Ford? Is he going to go to the farm? And this is really important because he needs to build that bridge with Danny because Danny can help him. And Danny sure. has this wisdom and knowledge. And, you know, I never really got the sense that it was that important to Dabo. Like, not that he has any had any ill will or anything t- toward him. I, I think Danny just keeps to himself and doesn't really want to be around that much. And then Dabo's trying to build his own culture. And, and then on top of that, Dabo, Dabo knew and knows that, Hey man, the, the and probably never want, would, would say it publicly, but you know, you guys were on probation at most of that time, you know? And so yeah. I want to yeah. do it the right way and not yeah. to, not to dominate this conversation, but in 2000, that same summer of 2012, when um, we turned that series of articles on Danny into a, a book, the Danny Ford years at Clemson. And I gave Dabo a copy of it over at the, the July dinner 
thing that he has every summer before the the golf the previous you know golf outing and all that so mm-hmm. the kickoff to the season and i gave him a copy of the book and he's he's like wow okay thanks he's thumbing through it and he goes i just got one question i go okay he goes did he ever lose a game <laughs> <laughs> and he was saying it in a joking way. Yeah. But even as recently as 2012, it's like almost like this this sort of revisionist history in the eyes of some people. Mm-hmm. It's 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 romanticized and glorified sure. excessively to the point where you forget about the finer points and the aforementioned sort of roller coaster ride with all the different controversies and such. But you see, I hear that, and I vividly remember Danny Ford when they were talking about adding even more seats onto Death Valley, and I'm pretty sure this was after they'd finished both upper decks, because I'm pretty sure, yeah, I heard, because in other words, they it was 82, 81, 82, whatever it was that they added the second, they finished the second upper deck. But I, I remember they were talking about adding more seats, and Danny Ford's response, and this is mid to late 80s. Oh geez, that's that many more people that can come in the stadium and yell and yell at me and boo me. <laughs> and and again, you know, keep in mind, I get to the state of South Carolina over in the PD area, where you know, folks that that have never lived in the PD, you have to realize that's that's as as much Clemson country as anything. You've got a huge Clemson Ag Center in Darlington that's been there forever. That is a huge presence. And then obviously all the agricultural connections for Clemson for obvious reasons. And uh, you know, mid. I, I get to the state in August 85 and, and it'll help Dabo to know that for as ever low as he may have felt coming out of 2010, yeah, Danny Ford had won a national title in 81. And the, the general thought I got was very tepid among Clemson fans at best at that point about Danny Ford, because again, they're having come out of the probation, they dipped down to seven wins. Uh, and then 85, of course, they've got this, kid from Spartanburg and this kid from Irmo battling a quarterback. And they decided to go with the kid from Irmo, even though the one from Spartanburg looked like he could be more of a big time college quarterback, but the kid from Irmo ran the option, I believe better. And I think that's what their decision was, but they go out, you know, they, 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 they seemed like every time you looked up, it was the first year CBS had a, a big contract uh, for college football. If it wasn't the first, it was the second because the, the court ruling had happened in the summer of 84 that opened all that up. And I'm a weekend guy over in Florence and I'm often in the station, obviously on Saturdays, but Clemson was on several Saturdays on our channel. I was at a CBS affiliate. And again, the close loss to Georgia in 85. And, you know, there was a close win here, a close loss, and they end up going six and five and they lose to Minnesota with an interim coach in the independence bowl. But, you know, I going into the 1986 season, I was here for the offseason. I left the state in March of 86, returned in March of 87. But you kind of got the impression that South Carolina was the program on the uptick. And because uh, there were, you know, two years, you know, they were just removed from the fire ant season of 84. Had kind of a mediocre year in 85, but everyone thought it was going to be 84 all over again coming up. And uh, if you were, were to drop uh, Dabo Sweeney in this state in the offseason going into 1986, you would very much think he would very much think that, boy, this Danny Ford guy barely, you know, was, was saving his job. Of course, has the decent season in 86 beat Stanford. And then we know what happened from there. So just, it's, it's so funny because revisionist history, I think can work two ways and sure he's gilded. And in many respects should be because you could argue with an NFL defense coming back in 1990. And that's still one of the greatest 
personnel defenses I've ever seen in person in 1990 that Clemson had with just enough offense, they would have very much probably been playing on New Year's Day for the national title in 1990. Had Danny stayed in place or had the Virginia game for Ken Hatfield not been his second, maybe been a little bit later in the year and give it him and his staff just a few more weeks to kind of get fully comfortable in games. But that's my take on that. Yeah. And I, it's interesting, you know, the, 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 uh, it's, it's very com- it's been very common over the decades uh, for Clemson folks to say, yeah, if had 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 things not gone sideways and Danny remained, then that 1990 team was so loaded that that they would have played for a national title. But then there's another school of thought that I've heard in recent weeks from some folks who were around back then, who are like, well, not necessarily because they something that's also I think sort of conveniently forgotten about that era. And something that has not uh, sort of bedeviled Dabo uh, dur- during his tenure is every year they would have this this loss that they shouldn't have had. Mm-hmm. You know, sure. in in '89 is his last year. Yeah. You know, they go down to Florida State and just bludgeon a a, a powerhouse Seminoles team, and so you're thinking then, okay, th- this this yeah. is a national championship team. Then they. They go and, and, and stub their toes. Beat Virginia at, Tech. Beat at, Virginia Tech, I think, and then the Duke game. Yeah, they lose at Duke, although uh, a pretty darn good Duke team finishes 8-4. and four. Steve Spurrier is the coach, they, yeah. but they lose that game. And then they lose at home to a rising Georgia Tech team under Bobby Ross, but still they get drilled 30-14 to 14 at home. Yep. Could never uh, get against, it going. Against Georgia Tech. And then, you know, previous to that, there's like the, the one instance that stands out to me is the uh, is the eighty uh, the eighty seven game against NC State and Dick Sheridan at Death Valley? Now Sheridan otherwise had the Wolfpack really good during that sort of span of time, but not in eighty seven. NC State was a four and seven team, and they're up thirty to nothing at halftime at Clemson, yep. which. You know, this is not the 2020 version of offensive football where teams score 30 points and a half routinely. This is like the dark ages of offensive football, and I still can't yep. really fathom that. Of course, Clemson came back and, and, and almost won, lost 30 to 28. But the point is, um, there were every year it seemed like they had a game where they just sort of <clears throat> fell on their faces which is a credit to, I think, Dabo and his uh, sort of body of work, is they don't really, uh, they don't have a, a high frequency or even a medium no. frequency of those games. And that's hard to do, uh, to, to avoid to avoid those slip-ups, whether you're talking about the 1980s or whether you're talking about other teams now, other really, really sure. good programs now. To Yeah, to their credit, and especially, I think you could probably point to... Um, you know, I mean, when was the last time you could say that the LSU game and then the uh, the Ohio State game are the only two games that I can think of that, and, and to a certain extent, the Alabama semifinal loss in 17, but you just kind of felt like Clemson was in that game until things got sideways, like in the third quarter. But the LSU title game and the Ohio State semifinal game are the only two games that mid-second quarter I have thought to myself since really – you know, the third quarter of the West Virginia bowl game that gosh, Clemson might not win this game. Yeah. And maybe I'm off on that, but I mean, a couple of thoughts real quick, just to jump back to, if you were to drop Dabo in 1986, 
let's also not forget what turned out to be a pretty good 1986 season began with a two-point loss at home against Virginia Tech. Yeah. Now, that was a 10-win Virginia Tech team in which Bill Dooley pretty much knew from the start of that year that he was going to get canned at the end of the season. I say 10 wins. They might have gone 9-2-1, but they, they won a lot of games. And a uh, story that, that a Clemson uh, uh, player who's no longer with us once told me <laughs> is that it was after it was after that game. I'm pretty sure, or it was halftime of the '87 NC State game. But Danny Ford comes in. I'm, I'm 99% sure it was after the Virginia Tech loss, and he comes into the locker room and screaming at the top of his lungs says, "What kind of good time are you having now? What kind <laughs> of good time are you having now?" To his whole team, and of course, the rest of the way they end up with a loss and, and two ties the rest of the way. But then the 87 game's interesting because, yeah, they, they're down 30 nothing at the half. They lose by two thirty to 28. And that was 87 in which earlier, within just a few weeks, maybe within a month before that, to this day, probably the greatest college football game I've ever seen in person. I was there covering for the TV station. was Georgia Clemson in Death Valley on a rainy day. You had Rodney Hampton. You had Terry Allen. You had talent on unbelievable talent. To go back and watch that game, you had the uh, uh, the safety coming up, uh, James Lott forcing it, and James Earl making the tackle for the safety on James Johnson. There were three James involved in a play that led to a key safety that then put them in a position for Treadwell to eventually kick the winning field goal. Unbelievable football game and then that. But you are absolutely correct. They would have, and if, if – Back then, you'd had social media, and other than back then, you had newspapers were probably the dominant media still, TV stations, some sports talk shows, pretty much the one in the evening that's still in existence in this state, not so much local. But you probably would have had the term Clemsoning coined back then uh, yeah. because you could, you could argue, you could argue that, you know, I always thought that was a stupid term anyway because yeah. you could apply that to every program in the country. But let me also say this. The ardent Clemson fan who experienced 1989 – will quickly point out to you, those who are in the know of this, and most of the diehards who followed the program back then will tell you, the week of the Duke game, which was played in the rain, and that was actually, they had beaten Maryland on the Saturday after Hurricane Hugo. They played, and that was when Terry Allen, and now the, the whole 89 thing comes back together. That was the first time Terry Allen got hurt that season. He got hurt against Maryland, and then re-injured against South Carolina later. But anyway... They played uh, Maryland at home on the Saturday after Hugo, and uh, South Carolina played Georgia Tech that night in Columbia, where Hugo just kind of grazed by. And I'll never forget it, because I was in Florence. We didn't have any power. I went over and covered the game in Columbia, covered for my station, but also so I could go out and get a nice meal at a place that had power after I covered the game. Um, and then they beat Maryland, so then the following Saturday – South Carolina went in on a rainy Saturday, beat Georgia, Georgia. And I remember being in the press box at Georgia covering that South Carolina game and watching a, you know, very somber and sad looking Chris Morocco walk off the field after the decisive play in a rainy day at Duke. But the ardent Clemson fan who was around back then will tell you the week of the Duke game and the week of the Georgia tech game, the NCAA was on campus investigating and asking questions. Mm-hmm. Those weeks of those games and those were the distractions. I'm simply reporting to you what more than one Clemson fan has mentioned to me over the years, that the NCAA investigated those two weeks. And those who have told me that choose to tie in a parallel between the team's performance on the following Saturday of those respective weeks. And again, little do we know that that Georgia Tech team with the young Sean Jones and Bobby 
Ross now uh, maybe a year into that coaching run, maybe a couple of years because he replaced Bill Curry after the 86 season, Ross left Maryland. So by then, Bobby Ross has it going. And a year later, correct me if I'm wrong, wasn't it 1990 that Georgia Tech shared the national championship? That's correct. Yeah, so that was a better team. And I, and I remember being at Danny. So I'm still in Florence at the time. And one of the reasons I've always felt like I had a kind of a special relationship with Danny Ford, I mean, not buddy-buddy, but very cordial, very professional, but very friendly, was that so every Tuesday I'd get up in Florence at 6 a.m., do the 11 o'clock news the night before, Tuesday in the fall we're talking about, so it's 10 or 11 Tuesdays in the fall, get in the car at 6 a.m., meet some other media guys in Columbia. We would drive up to the upstate and interview Danny and a couple of players they'd make available for us, and they served us some kind of great lunch. And while we ate, the scribes, newspaper guys, they would ask their questions. It was kind of a roundtable thing that we would also listen in on. But I'll never forget you know, we're going up there and this is a Clemson team. Yeah. They'd lost to Duke, but boy, they were probably still on the hunt for the title. They were probably going to win the AC and Danny Ford several times, both in talking to the broadcast media and then talking to the scribes kept saying, Georgia tech is going to be good. Mm. They're going to be good. You got, you don't, you know, don't look, they're going to be good. And I'm thinking, Oh, every coach says this, whatever. And then lo and behold, Sean Jones kind of had his coming out party. Can we recreate the picture um, going into the Gator Bowl um, and when you first – so you give give an idea of the rumblings. Uh, as I wrote, um, Danny yeah. Sheridan, who was then at CNN, yep. uh, he reported, I guess, a week before the Gator Bowl against West Virginia that Ford would leave Clemson after the season. I'm wondering – like okay, so they had destroyed South Carolina in Columbia, forty-five to mm-hmm. nothing, and then so I'm just curious if you can recall the timeline and when you started to sort of get the a, a feeling that okay, that something might happen here. Did it did it date all the way back to the summer when he when Ford popped off about the lack of an athletic dorm and and called out the administration, or was it more? sort of pronounced in the weeks leading up to the, to the Gator bowl and, and, and why, like what, I'm just curious what it was like to be covering that. Here's what I remember. And keep in mind at the time, I'm two and a half, three hours away from Clemson on the Eastern side of the state in an era where at the time, interestingly, the, both the state and the Greenville news were both statewide newspapers. Mm -hmm. So I was getting, yeah, that's where you got a lot of information. Obviously I'd call Clemson sports information, talk with them, talk to some, had some very good media contacts in the state. We'd share some thoughts. My recollection is you'd heard that there was a little bit of, 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 uh, you'd heard that Danny really wanted an athletic dorm. You'd heard that Clemson was going to build this building that was going to have, uh, be a tutoring center for the players to which I thought, gosh, they don't have that with all else they've got. Cause you know, back then, you know, mid to late eighties, Clemson still, you know, the stadium still, you know, was, I thought, you know, Sterling and, and you thought that Clemson was right there, you know, had everything they needed for football. It's like, wow, they, they didn't have something like that. You would have thought that. And of course we learned later on that the NCAA, this was right around the time they passed, you know, proposition 48 became bylaw five one J about cleaning up the academics. And now their next move was going to be on having athletic only dorms. And at the time, no one realized that, but again, 
after the fact, looking back in history, you're told one of the reasons Clemson wasn't going to go down that road was because they were told the NCAA was probably going to legislate out athletic, you know, athletic dorms. So it didn't make sense to try to move forward with a football dorm. On top of that, the determination was, look, if, if, you know, the NCAA is getting tougher on academic standards, and this is long before the Jim Barker vision of, of, trying to, you know, further step up the game of, of the institution from an academic standpoint. Um, I, yeah, I think the practical thing, and I'm sure Clemson wasn't the only athletic department that was having these very deep conversations was we need to do some things to further enhance, uh, what we're doing academically with football players front and center in mind. But I would think with all athletes, all the student athletes. And of course, so then, there were some murmurs, and apparently there was an IPTA meeting that was heavily attended in which, uh, as the story goes, I was not there. I've only heard the rekindlings of it. I'm I'm not too far off on, on what I've heard, but apparently Danny Ford made a point to a big gathering of Clemson fans and uh, that, that he thought he needed what he needed as opposed to uh, what the academic uh, side of things was. Now, here's what I don't know, and – and, and, and no one's ever further clarified it. I, I, I can't tell you, and I've never asked Danny about this. I, I don't think he was opposed to, you know, I, Danny Ford's one of the smartest human beings I've ever met in my life. I mean, he really is. And then he was an academic uh, all-conference player at Alabama. He's probably, you know, he's, he, he's one of these guys that is probably so shrewd with his money that he could, you know, probably take care of his family for 10 generations for all I know. But I do know that he was adamant that he needed an athletic dorm. That's what I know. I don't, I, I can't tell you what his feelings were about everything else to go along with it. I've heard some things, but I've never had to verify. Um, you, you got a sense that, that it was kind of business usual. And I was, again, I was up at Clemson every week. I didn't sense that anything was amiss. Um, you know, preseason came up when they had some media opportunities, you got the impression everything was all fine. And what you kept hearing about was maybe this is, you know, maybe we're all the way back from the probation era. You had, again, the makings of an unbelievable defense. You had the emergence of LeVon Kirkland, which was way under the radar in the 88 season. To go along with John Johnson, an outside linebacker who came in at the same time Kirkland did with all the plaudits and all the, the you know, in this era, five-star stuff, who had a really good career, but I always thought Kirkland had a better career. Anyway, you got the sense that it was all about they were going to win this year and it was going to be great. Now, maybe the thought was they win a national title, they're going to give Danny anything he wants, and everyone's going to live happily ever after. Or those who, you know, he's butting heads with, you know, may not be long for the place. But I didn't get a sense back then. It didn't seem to be that, you know, columnists were very influential. I don't remember any deep columns being written about the imminence of Danny Ford's departure from Clemson. And I think that speaks to the fact that per your excellent uh, coverage and, and series, when you point out that, you know, on the morning of Thursday, January 18th, there was nothing in the local newspaper about it. And, and believe you me, I was plugged in enough of the time that those who I talked to on a daily basis would have heard in, within media circles would have said, Hey, we're on the edge because five, you know, uh, four years later, we, you know, using that same process, we were out in front of the whole Hatfield story. So in terms of his departure, so it was not a murmur. It, it was, it, it, up until that morning, it was not as best I recall. It's not something you thought, you know, this might happen as opposed to, 
2008 when they lose that opening game of the year and then things are starting to go south. And I never thought that the whole Bowden thing would happen in the middle of the year. I thought maybe they'd, they'd give him another year, but make him make changes on his staff since they'd just given him a contract extension the previous December. But with Ford, I don't remember ever getting a sense that, wow, anything could happen. And this Danny Sheridan guy making that prediction, he's an odds maker. Maybe he's just trying to get some action in Vegas. He's an Alabama guy, though. So I thought maybe he knows something. He was from Mobile, Alabama. Maybe he's got some people in Alabama that know Danny. That was the only thought from me. Yeah. And so it happens. Did you come up here and, and, and were you present for the protests and all that stuff? I physically was not the way things were set up back then, um, staffing wise, what we covered and, and having, we were owned by the same company and, and the same company that owns channel seven owns the station I worked at in Florence. And it was one of those situations as I think back on it, um, I think so. We were two man staff and I think my, my number two guy, it was one of these deals where his wife was about to have their first child who was since, by the way, that child is now married and has a child uh, of her own, which is, tells you how long ago it was. Um, and I was one of those deals where he was maybe out on, you know, like imminent maternity leave or, or, you know, I couldn't go too far. And so just the way we worked it. And again, <clears throat> you really didn't know that Ken Hatfield was being brought in until Ken Hatfield was brought in on that Sunday morning. Um, it was a situation where the way things will work in TV, we'll always swap video those closest get things you eventually, you know, if you're further away, you eventually come to the story, but you didn't know really what story to go to because, yeah, you know, it was, a, you'd heard, well, maybe, you know, the Stacey Fields guy and Van Salmon and some others are talking about doing a vigil in front of the president's house. And then it kind of happened. So I was not physically on the ground uh, at Clemson for the weekend. And again, that, that Thursday morning, we get word, what we started getting word around 1030, maybe 10 a.m., at the earliest, um, I got a call from, you know, one of my buddies at my house, no cell phones back then, no internet. So, um, you really didn't know what to come up and cover. So you're thinking, well, you go up there on a Saturday and again, we're in basketball season. I think I probably went and covered a basketball game. And again, being in Florence, you know, there were things that you'd, you'd cover, you know, Columbia was in between there and Clemson. It was probably a 60, 40, maybe a 55, 45, fan breakdown in the Florence area, USC to Clemson. My opinion might be off a little bit, but it was, it was pretty close to 50, 50, but might've been just a little bit more USC. So anyway, um, my first time though, back up at Clemson after all that had gone down is about a less week and a half later, Ken Hatfield's in place. And then they were letting stations come up and do a one-on-one interviews with him. So I come up and interviewed him in his, uh, <laughs> this is something that, uh, that a uh, William Sweeney would appreciate. Now I went into Ken Hatfield's office and, you know, I was, I was one man banding, meaning you set your camera up, you frame the interview person, you know, put a microphone on him. You do the interview, you know, you're rolling and keeping an eye on the viewfinder. We did it in his office in the corner of the Jervy athletic center, which is now, you know, it's the closest part to the, uh, like perpendicular to the Avenue of champions. If you go in that lobby, it was just to the left. I don't know if that's a women's basketball office now, or I don't, I don't know what that is now. I don't think it's women's basketball. Cause I think they're over in little job, but anyway, he had this tiny little corner office in Jervy, <laughs> which is, you know, it's just, it's just so funny to think. And that, that had been Danny Ford's office. So it's just so funny to think how, how things have evolved. 
Yeah, the players were threatening to boycott the 1990 season at one point. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, so all that, and then we made the joke. It's funny. I was up here by the 19, I, I got up here at the, about the two-thirds of the way into the 1990 season when I physically got up to Channel 7 in the upstate. And then in the 91 season, of course, they uh, they played Cal to end that season. And kind of a, we were driving down to Florida to go cover that bowl game. And we were just kind of joking. You know, it's interesting. In the 60s at Cal Berkeley, they were protesting the uh, the war. And, uh, and here in the, uh, you know, uh, early 90s at Clemson, they've been protesting the coaching change. Because you can talk about that, that moment on Thursday, January 18th, 1990. But that began essentially, you know, uh, a decade of, you know, you did Danny wrong. We're angry about Danny, poor Ken Hatfield, such a great man, a very, you know, an excellent football coach. Some, sometimes people are in the wrong place at the wrong time. You wouldn't find a better quality person. And, and I'm, and, you know, look, Danny Ford is a good man. And, and I, I'm sure Danny Ford felt badly that Ken Hatfield had to go through what he went through because, you know, from the time it's, it's, it's just not often that a guy pulls up for his introductory news conference outside of the football stadium where he's now going to try to win a lot of games. And, and there's a collection of folks there and, and they're not there to welcome him with open arms. Let's put it that way. So you combine that, that was a Sunday morning of that weekend. It was the Friday night of that weekend. I believe it was a Friday. I could be wrong. Maybe it was a Saturday night. I'm pretty sure it was the Friday night. The day after everything happened, they do the candlelight vigil outside of the president's home on the Clemson campus. The players were front and center in that. Um, and it just, you know, it, I, I vividly remember within the week of, of Ken Hatfield getting hired, the first time I ever interviewed him was actually over in Florence because, so this is late January of 90. Maybe it's the first week of February, but I, I think, I interviewed him over there before I came to the upstate to do a one-on-one with him. And, you know, they had an IPTA gathering in Florence. That's back when they used to do about 32 IPTA stops a year all over the state. And usually the football and basketball coach would do about a third to two thirds of them and, and whatever. So, and, and God love the, the IPTA folks in Florence trying to put the best face on this thing. And, you know, they had little signs Hatfield is the real McCoy and just, you know, trying to make the best. And, and you could just feel the, the tension in the room and you could just sense it. It just, you know, cause usually those are exciting events and, you know, the Gamecock people would do the same thing and some of the other state schools and it was a neat deal and everyone would come out wearing their school colors. They'd have a dinner at a, you know, at some restaurant in Florence. And then it was just, uh, you know, sometimes we'd go live out there, the coach would join us and it just had such a weird, eerie feeling to it. And it was, it was within I'm pretty sure maybe I'd already interviewed Hatfield in the upstate and then I interviewed him again. So he gets there and he's, you know, and, and again, couldn't have been a, a more gracious guy. And then of course I got to know him even more because his last two years, I actually hosted and produced his TV show. Um, in you know, one of my, my many iterations, uh, uh, working from the inside from the Clemson standpoint. And so I got to know him even more. And, and what I'd always thought was a real good guy covering his news conference, whatever, you know, you do a TV show with a coach, you get to, to chat with them a little bit while they're, you know, you're waiting for things to start rolling. So, uh, you know, it, it, in the end, what will always be termed a separation that he had with Clemson. It, it, it was probably best for all parties. Um, 
he, you know, it, he, he'd had a, a, a difficult time at his alma mater, Arkansas, from what I was told that it was an opportunity that he thought was, was going to, you know, uh, be a better move for him personally and professionally at the time, getting away from Arkansas. And obviously I, I think, you know, had he stepped back, he, he would have, uh, he would have rethought things, you know, thinking back to the separation, you know, it, it's kind of fascinating to wonder, like had social media been around then and been as Ugh, as wow. as widespread as it is now, you wonder. I think it's a legitimate question. Um, would it, the resistance have been powerful enough to to reverse the decision? You know, I don't know. I mean, because it was coming from Bob, and again, I always felt badly for Bobby Robinson because I vividly remember seeing him at that function I was telling you about in Florence. And the poor guy looked like he hadn't eaten or slept in, you know, weeks. I mean, my God, I felt so bad. I, I dealt with him a couple of times. Very nice guy. And obviously got to know him, you know, really well once I moved up here, especially. And I always felt badly for him. You have to wonder, you know, it just maybe even if things were. Yeah, you, you had a you just had a president in place who actually was a very big sports fan. I I did a double take one time many years later, long after Max Lennon had completed his time as Clemson's president. We're talking 15 years later. I'm getting on an elevator at a hotel in Greensboro, ACC tournament weekend, and there he is. I'm like, Dr. Lennon, how are you? Shook his hand, and can I'd gotten to know him a little bit. I guess I'd interviewed him. I'd interview him around the Ford thing, but I'd interviewed him at some other points in time. And oh, how you doing? You know, so, well, you know, we're back. I I have ACC basketball tickets every year, and you know, come back to the tournament. And here was a guy who I believe had an Ohio State connection in his past, had been a president at like Mars Hill or some other school. I'm not sure if that was immediately before he came to Clemson, but you know, the guy. It's not like he was anti-athletics, but um, you just have to wonder. I, I, I don't know what the board of trustee to president dynamics were back then, if maybe more so from a social media standpoint, because there was enough interactive radio, you know, call-in shows, like there were some local news call-in shows back then. So obviously they became all Danny all the time for several weeks, plus the nightly statewide show. So there was enough interaction. Letters to the editor were a big deal back then that the voices of the people were heard. But you just have to wonder if you'd had a board of trustees that was more uh, in a position felt like they they didn't want to see this happen that would have been a more interesting i think um dynamic to explore back then compared to uh you know subsequent years but you raise a good point but but there was enough of a din there was there was enough of a clamor about all this and enough influential people that you know, could have their voice heard without going on a talk show or writing a letter to the editor, could simply call a very powerful person. There were enough influential people that probably could have gotten this thing reversed or, or at least probably tried to get this thing reversed. And per, I, I think we can see did not have the success again, another backstory I've always heard on this. And, and I, and I'm not saying this is, is necessarily for the record, but I think it's safe to discuss in this forum. You probably heard the same thing. It was, it was only a few years earlier, of course, that the whole SMU thing had happened. And you'll remember Clemson had had its issues in the early eighties and it just, and, and there was a concern I've been told over the years that Clemson felt like maybe they needed to make this change because they feared 
you know, what's to say the NCAA won't do to us what they did to SMU? Now, keep in mind, what no one knew at the time was that David Burst, who had run the whole investigation at SMU, had had basically stated to the powers that be that, and maybe it had been decided among those of the NCAA who make such decisions, they would never do a death penalty to a program again, to that extent. I've simply heard that, again, these are conversations you hear over the years. I'm not stating it for the record, but I'm, I'm, I'm told that there was maybe a thought that perhaps as a show to the NCAA that, that they had institutional control, that perhaps this was one of the, the motivating factors as to why things had to transpire the way they did above and beyond some of the things that Danny had expressed about an athletic dorm, about some of the uh, energy toward building what would be Vickery hall and anything else. And then there may be other aspects and issues between Danny, the administration, the administration and Danny at the time that I'm not privy to. Yeah. And, and another sort of uh, highlighting of, of, of how, sort of the stars aligning with, with Dabo and sort of the, I guess the genius behind the, or the vision there uh, is the, the, the alignment is, is so harmonious um, from, from Dabo up, uh, up above him, Dan Radakovich and then the president of the board of trustees and compared to with Danny, you know, he's constantly great alignment bickering yeah, great with, alignment. with everybody. And then he, I think Danny yep. even told me himself years ago, you know, uh, the two sides were just kind of hot-headed and stubborn and, and and emotional. And had we had had we taken a deep breath, um, maybe a few deep breaths, and and <laughs> and let some cooler heads prevail, then maybe it could have gotten resolved. But I think he he even acknowledged that uh, you know yep. I was too bullish with with bullheaded with with with, with what I was doing, and, and and probably so was the other side as well. So, well, and keep in mind too, you know, it had been five years earlier that Clemson had had issues between a, a president and an athletic director. And, you know, one could argue, even though both ended up moving on that, uh, you could argue athletics from what I'm told, again, I wasn't there for it, but, uh, perhaps this was the university saying, look, you know, we feel like we've got to do this now. We can't keep making it look like athletics, gets the win, mm-hmm. if that makes any sense. And again, yeah. both the athletic director and the president who were at loggerheads in the mid eighties subsequently moved on. Um, so, and, and I've also had this shared with me over the years, and this is nothing against Bobby Robinson because he did some, some great things against some really difficult circumstances uh, during his time as the athletic director. And in a different time at Clemson might've been able to achieve so much more, but um you know, it might have maybe if there were, and again, Bobby Robinson had been in the AD job only for a few years when, when this all happened. But again, maybe an additional party that could have stepped in and said, Hey, wait a minute, let's just everyone go into a corner. Um, and, and yeah, take those breaths. But I think that that additional voice of reason, and maybe that voice of reason could have come from a board of trustees. Maybe that voice of reason could have been a, a booster who might've been more in the know and could have been that person who kind of, you know, been a consensus builder and let's just all get this figured out and, and we can figure out a way to coexist. Everyone doesn't have to like each other, but you know, perhaps. And, and, and again, maybe, and I, and again, I don't know this, I wasn't in, in the room, but maybe Bobby Robinson did, I'll say this, I'm sure Bobby Robinson did everything he could 
toward that end. And it was just a fight that he, you know, didn't have enough battleships and tanks to, to be able to, to make happen and, and keep the peace. If, if ESPN ever decides to do a 30 for 30 on Clemson football, it'll probably be the Dabo era. But honestly, I would rather see a 30 for 30 on the Danny yeah, era. Well, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's interesting, you know, and kind of to go back to what we were talking about earlier in the conversation, I, and, and, you know, Dabo in, in, in 2008, I mean, my goodness, he had, it was like, you know, he was standing at the plate and four Nolan Ryans were, you know, throwing their best fastball at him at the same time for all that happened for him from that day in October, uh, really until the day he puts the green jacket onto the West end zone. And he's, you know, officially till December 1st, uh, officially got the job, but I do vividly remember, and heck, these quotes may have been written by you and I'm sure it was reporting your site, but I do remember among the things that he did, uh, during those, those months of, of being the interim head coach, uh, I remember Danny Ford commenting about Dabo. Now, this might have been something simply that a uh, reporter just reached out to Danny, but I vividly remember it, and I, I was I was like, wow, if Danny's saying that, that really says a lot about uh, how uh, Danny said, you know, just watching Dabo uh, do his thing, you know, and, and just watching this team play, you can just tell. That, you know, the, he was basically saying the edges are really squared and – you know, the, I like how the guys are running, uh, you know, their pads are in the right place and, and that kind of thing. And, and, I, and, I, and that's always stuck in my mind. And that, that might have been the week going into the Clemson Carolina game of that year in 2008. I always remember that because it wasn't for some reason within several months after that, I was pulling some old video of the late 80s. Maybe it was something to do with Terry Allen. Or just so I went back in our archives, but just watching some of that. You know, that option running game, we always think of, of Clemson, well, they ran the option. But well, I'll tell you one thing. Once they gave that ball to Joe Henderson or Terry Allen or, or you go back to Kenny Flowers and Terrence Fly, the Elkrat, I mean, just the cuts and the you just look at and, – and a lot of it I'm looking at is a downstairs camera and oftentimes from the end zone with the offense running towards you. But you just see where all the edges were squared back in that, that Danny Ford offense and, and uh, Chuck Reedy offense. And for all the criticism of it, just, you know, the cuts were so nice and perfect and the blocking. And there was always, you know, that, that guard that pulled was always in the right place. Or big Chris Lancaster was always right there to demolish a guy. So Wesley McFadden or Joe Henderson or, or Terry Allen or one of those guys. And again, the other guys before them. But uh, I vividly remember Danny saying some really encouraging things, positive things about Dabo and what he'd seen. I'm pretty sure that was Clemson, Carolina week of 08. I don't know if it was the result of Danny coming out to a practice uh, or not, you may know specifically, but I, I do remember seeing Danny say something. I thought, hey, you know, it's, it's it's a gracious thing for Danny to say. He didn't have to say that, but uh, I don't think Danny would have said it to the extent that he did had he not really believed. It. And I always thought that was a a very positive thing as far as Dabo uh, being able to get the job full time. I mean, one of many things, but I thought that that was a nice something nice to have on your you know uh, reference list, so to speak. Pete Yannity, this has been really cool to sort of dig back. Uh, and take the trip down memory lane uh, from somebody who watched a lot of it happen. Really appreciate you, you joining the podcast. It has been my pleasure. And uh, yeah, it's a really interesting era, man. It's, uh, it's a time when my life changed uh, quite a bit during that whole time. Uh, moved from Florence here to the upstate. Um, quick, just a couple of real quick. Can I drive time? Sure, I, don't absolutely. Know yeah. I don't know if your sponsors will put it, but just <laughs> this will. And again, uh, Danny, 
just kind of thinking about it, this is just kind of give you an idea as to what Danny Ford was all about. Um, and I first met him in 1985. I told you about those Tuesdays in the fall when we'd come up from Florence, because back then, if you didn't do it, somebody might be able to, to get it to you a couple of days later, but it, you just, you had to go get things yourself really, if you wanted them on time. But I, even as a weekend guy in the fall of 85, our weekday guy decided just to have me come up on a Tuesday, which I thought it was great. And, you know, they let you, and they let you interview Danny one-on-one. So that's the first time I got to know him. And he just seemed very reserved. I'd only seen him on TV, but a very nice guy and could not have been more gracious. And I'm, I'm 21 years old at the time. And I'm, you know, a couple of months out of college. And, uh, I, I just thought, hey, that's pretty neat. This guy's won a national title, and, and he, you know, was was pretty cool. Anyway, so time goes on, and you know, as 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 it is in in, in my main job on a Friday night, I'm I'm at a lot of different. In the fall, I'm out covering high school games and and out getting highlights, and and so every so often you'll see you know coaches from different schools. And over the years, I've gotten to know them. Back then, I I would just recognize them in their orange, but I I they'd see me with a camera, I'd give away. I'm assuming Danny was at some of these games because you know he could, he was with an assistant to watch a kid because in the pd they got uh, richard mccullough out of loris norris brown out of conway they got this kid named ty gibson out of hartsville during that era who's probably one of the most physically impressive kids i've ever seen and they come over they got some kids over there but they were always over there one time on a just a generic july night i run down to get a takeout order at some restaurant and Miles Aldridge is sitting in the lobby waiting to get seated. I'm like, hey, coach, you don't know me, but oh, yeah, how you doing? So that's the first time I ever Miles Aldridge was like in the summer of 88 uh, on Irby Street in Florence at some restaurant. But um, anyway, but this will just kind of give you an idea as to what Danny Ford's all about. So I'm at the uh, the Oklahoma Gator Bowl, January 2nd, 1989, for the 88 season when Dexter Davis from Sumter, who I covered in high school, another kid from they were, we covered them. They were, they really weren't in the PD. They're more Midlands, but we still covered their team. Anyway, I remember Dexter Davis knocks down the Holloway, uh, Jamel uh, Hollowell, uh, Jamel Holloway passed to the end zone and Clemson wins 13 to six or 13 to seven on that last play. It was on a Monday in uh, January, Monday, the second of January, 1989. Anyway, so we're in this media, they had a media tent. That's where you went. And they did the post game coaches news conference. And there I am among the many media lined up on the, with my little camera. I was just, again, your one man banded things. And then you went out to a satellite truck and did a live shot and I'm just shooting there. But Danny catches my eye and he's just kind of going on his opening comments, but he catches my eye, makes eye contact with me. And just, he's like, you know, we're just a, you know, we're just a, a program that, you know, we just go get the best players and, and kids that, that want to fight and play hard. And then he looks up at me, you know, <laughs> kids locked from Loris and, and Conway and, 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 and places like that, whatever. And, and that's just, that's just the magic of Danny Ford. And, and again, Dabo is, is, is that. And, and then some, um, in terms of, you know, he's such a wonderful marketer and all that, but that was just kind of Danny Ford, you know, he, he didn't have to do it, but he saw he, he knew that a guy like me would appreciate that kind of a soundbite in, in, you know, yeah. recapping that game. And he just, <laughs> it's just, just stuff like that about Dan. but that's the kind of guy, Danny, he's just, He's such a, he's, he's just a good guy. And he's just, he's again, so such an incredibly smart person with Dabo. You meet him. There's no doubt. He's a bright guy. Danny, of course, kind of sold the old, you know, three yards in a cloud of dust attitude, but he, he truly is a brilliant man. And just observing him over the years and then the many conversations and just hearing him speak and all that, the guy was just, he's just a heck of a guy, really a good guy. 
So how did y'all's relationship develop over the years after, of course? Yeah. You know. Well, so so it helps. So those Tuesdays of making six-hour trips have been anchored at 11 o'clock on a Monday night. And I did it from 87 to 89. And then in the fall of 90, I actually I started having my, my weekend guy do them because it's just like, you know, I've been doing this for three years. And then I was in, you know, the upstate by the end of October of, of 1990. But anyway – all those issues gives you value of when you hustle in our business. And, and I, you know, I don't have to tell you that because you've, you know, been able to achieve unbelievable things because of your hustle. But when you hustle in our business, so all those Tuesdays of making the three hour trip to Clemson to literally be on the campus for maybe an hour and a half, do your interviews, go have the great lunch. And I'll tell you, it was a fabulous lunch. They served us. It was buffet style. It always had a wonderful roasted chicken and the coleslaw was to die for. <laughs> And then, but then sit around also. So not only have you just interviewed him and a couple of players, but sitting around there, listening to him, talk to the newspaper guys, we usually had to politely excuse ourselves around 1245 because I had to go back and anchor the six o'clock news and drop the guys off in Columbia. Then I'd get, I'd walk in the station about four o'clock. But again, I had, you know, a tape with all kinds of great sound about that week's Clemson game. Um, but just this will give you a great example of when you hustle. So that's kind of how he got to know me. Now, I would go up there on Saturdays and cover, game, cover games. I didn't cover every Clemson game between 87 and 89 because, again, I usually rotate between Clemson and South Carolina. Back then, Clemson, of course, played 1 o'clock games. There were many Saturdays that I'd go to Clemson, cover their 1 o'clock game, drive down to Columbia. We had a place where you could feed video out of in Columbia. I would feed my stuff out of there, and then I'd go cover USC 7 o'clock game. I double dipped that run many times between 87 and 89. So he'd get to see me. And, and, and when you interviewed the coach after the game back then, you kind of just gather around in an, almost like a tunnel behind their locker room in the old West end zone setup. And, uh, and I asked him questions. So we developed that professional relationship, but then again, the power of, of hustle and getting to know a guy, cause there weren't many from around the state who, as I recall in the TV media, doing what I was doing, driving across state every dog on Tuesday to interview him for, you know, 10 or 11 weeks, and then coming up to many of the games, talking to him after the game and that stuff. So he gets the whole Arkansas thing happens in 1992. Citadel goes out there, beats Arkansas. They fire Jack Crow, who had been on Danny Ford's last staff at Clemson, interestingly enough. Joe Kynes becomes the interim, but all of a sudden we get word that Danny Ford is, you know, going to be uh, – come out there to, I don't know, but it eventually transpired. He gets hired as head coach. Well, the fact that I could do, you know, I'm able to do a one-on-one by satellite with the guy. And, and I'm not so sure that had he not known who I was, he would have done that with just someone from back in South Carolina for very obvious reasons. We're talking, you know, we're two years removed from everything falling apart. I'm sure he still had hard feelings. Why wouldn't he? It's completely understandable. And um, I always thought that that kind of helped from that standpoint. And, uh, and that was a big part of it. Um, you know, people also don't realize this. So the thing, everything goes down in January, Clemson, May 30th or 31st of that year, he has Bob Bradley put together a media gathering at the old Greenville auditorium in Greenville so that he could speak his piece. Cause this was just a couple of days after the NCAA came out with this. Yeah, we're putting you on five years probation, but it's, you know, it's not going to be as bad as the previous one. You can still go to bowl, still be on TV and all that. He gets a met and that's the most emotional I've ever seen him. I'll never forget him saying, you know, all I did was try to bring kids in to, you know, to go to college, to get their education and to win. And he breaks up when he says, and to win. And, uh, so we do the thing at the Greenville auditorium. Um, 
that's in May of 1990. I come up here in October of 1990 for my job. And then in the winter of like, in like January or February of 91, all of a sudden Joe Williams, the former Furman basketball coach, it might've been a couple of years later, they unveil that Greenville is going to be part of this new thing called the global basketball association. And they're going to play with a white basketball. And he had this beautiful color chart of seating at the Greenville auditorium, which at that point was probably the falsest advertising ever of this. <laughs> you know, the building was just in such godforsaken shape, but one of those who was going to be on the, you know, executive board of the new Greenville spinners of the global basketball association was Danny <laughs> Ford. And I'm like, Geez. I'm thinking like a Gadsden high, maybe he played basketball, but really, and, and they were just doing anything they could to get attention to this thing. And, you know, for those couple of years that he was just kind of hanging out on the farm in the upstate, you know, every so often you hear, Hey, Danny's going to put his name behind this. And, you know, uh, you know, they, they honored Frank Howard at like some Greenville touchdown club thing. I'll never forget. And we had video, you know, there's Danny helping Frank Howard, you know, come into the old holiday Inn there on uh, Roper mountain road in uh, in Greenville. But uh, it was funny. Danny just kind of kept popping up. For the rest of, uh, he, he kind of came out with the uh, out of the shadows and out of hiding with the Greenville Spinners thing. Then he just kind of pop up at different events for the rest of '91 into 1992, and then he gets the Arkansas, the Arkansas thing. Again, Joe Kimes was the interim coach. I'm pretty sure it was in the fall of 92 that Danny actually went out there to kind of become a consultant with everyone realizing they're going to name him the head coach. And cause I'm pretty sure Kynes finished that year out. And I'm sorry, I, I don't have a specific, but then they eventually named him the head coach. But I, I just think it, it probably helped and it helped him be comfortable with that satellite interview. Cause I'm sitting in my studio in Spartanburg. He's sitting out there in Fayetteville, but there was a certain comfort, a certain chemistry, a certain rapport. And then obviously he goes through the Arkansas deal um, eventually moves back here. And then whenever we see each other, it's, you know, it's just, you know, I, I appreciate the fact I've always looked at him as this iconic figure. And I think he appreciates that I'm one of those, you know, familiar faces from back in the uh, late eighties when, when times were, you know, pretty doggone good for him. Do, do TV, is it common for TV stations to have, to still have the archived, Oh the yeah, footage of the, all the press conferences and such that happened back not, in the age. Not the actual press conferences, but basically the way it goes is, like whatever we show on the air, we then save in an archive system. Now, sadly, uh, you go back to the '80s, and we've got all the way back to we've got stuff all the way back to the late '70s. Okay, but from 1977 to 1989, into into the '89 year, we can't play any of it because it's on, it's on a format of tape that the mach- last machine we had that played it broke. And apparently, you know, they don't make replacement parts. Our engineers don't want to fix it. So I've got, you know, 13 or 14 years of unbelievable archive stuff that I can't even, you know, if we really had to have it, we could probably find a company that could do it. There'd be a cost involved. But yeah, for the most part, from the beta tape era, which we can still play, I can go back and find anything that we need. And obviously, I've been here since at my station since 1990. And so... You know, something ever happens historically, I'm thinking, boom, I remember doing the interview with this guy or I remember getting video of this guy then. And if you look in, you know, May of 1990 or, or you know, May of 1992 or whatever, we interviewed him here. And, and there's also video with that or that kind of thing. So, yeah. Oh, yeah. It's, and and obviously, since the middle of the last decade or actually since about 2012, now everything, of course, sits on a cloud somewhere, which makes it even easier to find if it was 
properly put in there, but that's way too technical stuff uh, that you need to know. But yeah, we, uh, and then from a high school football standpoint, I mean, again, some guy makes a hall of fame somewhere that played here in 1991, 92. Boom. I can have it in my machine and on the air within two minutes. I don't know. Maybe this is just me, but it'd be, I'd be really entertained to be able to go back and watch hours of, 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 Oh, you'd have a field day because again, and a lot of it is, and again, we, we not only, okay. So I, I, I misspoke. So like the high school stuff we show on the air, we save, but like the Clemson stuff and the South Carolina stuff, if we shoot it, we'll save 15 minutes of it. And my station, we got the contract to uh, produce the Clemson shows again in 2017. Now, ever since uh, things ended with me in uh, April of 2014, I've had my, my number two guy, who's an amazing guy and does great stuff, pretty much cover Clemson. So, and he'll shoot a lot of it. And so, but, but ever since we've started doing the coaches shows now, he's always there shooting on the sideline every game. And then we use the TV video for the upstairs video, but you know, we probably have 15 to 20 minutes of every Clemson game. And yeah, we've got every player, several plays of every player that we save in the archive. But uh, so the point being, you go all the way through our archive system of what can be played since 1989 and you not only have different plays, but there's also a lot of natural sound stuff on the sidelines, guys saying things, Reggie Herring chewing out Alex Ardley uh, on the sideline of the game up at Duke or North Carolina, which is, you know, classic um, in 2000, I think. Um, you know what I'm saying? So, oh, yeah. I mean, we've got all kinds. It's amazing. And sometimes when I go back and I'll search for uh, for something, I'll be shuttling through and I'll see it's like, God, I forget that, you know, just something completely unrelated. And, you know, I'll forget that or whatever. Really cool stuff, Pete. Um, this has been fun. Uh, I'm sure you got a, sure you got work to do today. I don't want to hold you, hold you for all too good, long. All good, man. Anytime for you and then this podcast and the great work you do with it. Uh, the feeling is mutual about you and your work, Pete. Uh, I appreciate your friendship, and it's great to, uh, great to catch up. All right, my friend. Good talking to you. I'm, I'm sure maybe sometime down the line uh, when uh, the 10 people you have booked uh, can't make it, uh, I'll be there for you, <laughs> I know. That sounds good. All right. Thanks to Pete Hannity and Cole Kibalik for their participation in this week's podcast. Also appreciate the loyal support of our six sponsors. Most of all, thanks to all of you for your interest in listening every week. Really appreciate it. Everybody be safe. Back next week. Cheers.